All right. Well, we've kind of spent the last two Bible studies on this one subject here of the transfer to the kingdom, uh, or having a king. So we're going to pick off from there. 1 Samuel 10. I am your God, the one who rescues you from all your troubles and difficulties. But today you have rejected me and have asked me to give you a king. Very well then, gather yourselves together. And we won't go through the whole story, but how they drew lots and actually ended up with Saul. I guess one thing maybe to consider, though, um, you know, if you were the president of your class or the leader of something and the group had gotten together and decided, you know what, we'd really like to have someone else. <laughs> and, um, and if it were up to you, the, the president, whoever that might be, who I'm sure is doing a wonderful job, but if it were up to you, then to pick your successor, wouldn't you be kind of tempted to um, pick someone who wouldn't do a good job? You know, pick uh, the worst possible candidate. That'll get them. That'll show them that it was really a mistake. So what did God do? Well, then Samuel had each tribe come forward, and the Lord picked the tribe of Benjamin. Then Samuel had the families of the tribe of Benjamin come forward, and the family of Matri was picked out. Then the men in the family of Matri came forward, and Saul, son of Kish, was picked out. They looked for him, but when they could not find him, they asked the Lord, is there still someone else? And I don't know, I've read this in a lot of different versions, and I'd like to know what, what really happened here, but they asked God, is there someone else? And then there's this voice. The Lord answered, Saul is over there, hiding behind the supplies. Um, how did that really happen? A voice from the clouds, he's over there. I don't know. But anyway, they ran and brought Saul out to the people, and they could see that he was a foot taller than anyone else. Samuel said to the people, here is the man the Lord has chosen. There is no one else among us like him. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of a king and then wrote them in a book, which he deposited in a holy place. And then he sent everyone home. Saul also went back home to Gibeah and some powerful men whose hearts God had touched went with him. So it seemed, number one, that at least at this point, Saul wouldn't seem to be proud. I mean, he's hiding behind the supplies when they've chosen him to be king. And then God uh, sent these men whose hearts he had touched, to be with Saul, to lead him. Okay, and, and earlier on, when uh, Samuel told Saul that he was going to be king, when Saul turned to leave Samuel, God gave Saul a new nature. Isn't that interesting? So it would seem that God really chose the best man that was available at that time. And it would seem that he did everything possible for him, to get things off in the right start again. I think it says good things about God. He could have picked you know, a real loser for this job, um, but it picked the, the best person that was available. Now, what we're gonna talk about here is, from this point on, things just cascade downhill for Saul. And uh, of course, you know the, the words of Jesus, that we are quite talented in seeing the speck in our brother's eye and not very insightful at seeing the beam in our own eye. So we're gonna see a large beam uh, in Saul's eye. But I think we all have some of Saul inside of us, this problem that Saul dealt with. And we're going to try to understand that. Okay, so here's the first thing that Saul as king is told. And Samuel told him, Now, go down to Gilgal ahead of me. I will join you there to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. You must wait for seven days until I arrive and give you further instructions. Okay, that's pretty clear. Well, the Philistines mustered a mighty army of 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and as many warriors 
as the grains of sand on the seashore. They camped at Michmash, east of Beth Avon, and the men of Israel saw what a tight spot they were in. And because they were hard pressed by the enemy, they tried to hide in caves, thickets, rocks, holes, and cisterns. And they're supposed to wait seven days. Some of them crossed the Jordan River and escaped into the land of Gad and Gilead. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal, and his men were trembling with fear. Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier. But Samuel still didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away, so he demanded, bring me the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offerings himself. Now this must have appeared rather shocking. Uh, only the priests, of course, were supposed to do the sacrifice. And here you have Saul ready for battle, you know, with his sword and all of his gear on, uh, offering the sacrifices. Okay, that's kind of unusual. Well, uh, and Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. And just as Saul was finishing the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to meet and welcome him. And I've often wondered if we put this together with the other encounter, which we'll read a little bit, I wonder if this was kind of a guilty, you know, coming out to meet and welcome Samuel. You know, when you have kids, you, you see this, it, it's very much on the uh, surface level with children. When uh, my son was three or four, I came home one day, walked upstairs, and he burst out of the bathroom and uh, said, hi, Dad, how are you doing? And uh, I don't think my son had ever asked me, how am I doing? Um, you know, it's unusual. So right away, okay, what's up? Something's going on. I went in the bathroom and he'd taken my wife's lipstick and drawn stuff all over the place. But, so there, there would seem to be a little bit of uh, guilt here in Saul running out to welcome Samuel after what he'd just done. And Saul uh, said, what is this you have done? And Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me and you didn't arrive when you said you would and the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So he's putting this in the best light possible. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. <clears throat> And we have to contrast here. Um, I mean, how bad was this, what Saul did? You know, he was nervous, he panicked, he offered the sacrifice, and we consider the man after God's own heart. Well, he did some things too. He committed adultery, had Bathsheba's husband killed. Um, now, which is worse? I mean, next time we're going to talk about David and consider what made him a man after God's own heart. But, you know, this could seem like God is uh, overreacting a little bit. But the Lord had already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. I think as we go through the story of Saul, we see this is just a tip of the iceberg. Now, um, I don't think I've ever had so much feedback as the Bible study we had a couple weeks ago. Lots of emails and questions that were very good. And I'm kind of going to artificially interject a little bit to answer at least one of those questions that came up um, from several of you from last time. I think we could say that in this story, at least, Saul certainly valued effectiveness over faithfulness. More important to do what was effective, what would accomplish things, uh, and faithfulness became somewhat less important. Uh, this is a quote from uh, Yoder, that this vision of ultimate good being determined by faithfulness and not results 
is the point where we modern men get off. So in other words, we, you know, very much just the way our society is, uh, effectiveness is at a premium. And uh, faithfulness is, uh, you know, it's, I think subconsciously, it's, it's put a notch or two down. Certainly in this case, we see Saul doing the effective thing, not the faithful thing. Well, we might think, um, hey, if God told me something to do very specifically, uh, man, I would wait it out. I would do it. It wouldn't be any question. But let me just uh, come back to what I see as such a central message of Jesus and the entire New Testament. Uh, thing we expanded on this last time. But this command over and over, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And I've read so many times um, something like this. I decided to leave the name off uh, specifically who said this, but, well, turning the cheek isn't going to work with these enemies. It's not practical. It's not effective to deal with enemies uh, in this way, at least in this case, uh, and in this one, and, and in the other one. It, you can't deal with it in, in any practical sense. Um, well, again, um, I, I, just a question, are we called as Christians primarily to be faithful or to do what is effective from a worldly perspective? And along those lines, I appreciate these words, that the basis for the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount is not what works, but rather the way God is. Cheek turning is not advocated as what works. It usually does not. Now, I think we could argue that in many cases it does work. I mean, look what Jesus did and Martin Luther um, King and Gandhi. So I think in the long run, we do see it is effective, but do we live our lives just to do what is effective? Cheek turning is not advocated as what works. It usually or often does not, but it is advocated because that is the way God is. God is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. Okay, so uh, I think we need to switch that relationship around, that we're gonna do, we're gonna be faithful Okay, even if from a worldly standard or perspective, it may seem like a foolish thing to do. We're still going to be faithful to that way of living, uh, which is quite radical when you really begin to try to uh, view things and live your life in that way. Okay, well, that's a, uh, just a little small point. We're going to get on to the bigger issue uh, of uh, what was really the problem with Saul. So you know about all the fighting here with the Philistines and just verses just kind of stand out at you, considering Saul, where he would say, well, there's no time to consult the Lord. Okay, you don't want to say that if you're going to be quoted in the Bible. Of course, the priest is saying, well, let's consult God first. No, there's no time. Okay, again, uh, effectiveness over faithfulness. And then uh, he just did some foolish things that seemed to just get larger and larger and more obvious with time. Okay, you recall that in a battle, the Israelites were weak with hunger that day because Saul, with a solemn oath, had given the order, a curse be on anyone who eats any food today before I take revenge on my enemies. So no one had eaten anything all day. Now, what does this sound like? I mean, the king, I mean, he's supposed to do God's will, and he's saying, until I have revenge on my enemies, no one can eat. That seems like a rather foolish and arbitrary command. And of course, uh, Jonathan didn't know anything about this. Remember, he ate the honey. And then um, his own son is quite unusual that you would think that Saul would say, may God strike me dead if you are not put to death. That actually his foolish command would trump the very brave behavior of Jonathan. Okay, and the people had to stand in for Jonathan. And they said to Saul, will Jonathan, who won this great victory for Israel, be put to death? I must think there was some jealousy um, for Jonathan here on Saul's part. 
No, we promise by the living Lord that he will not lose even a hair from his head. What he did today was done with God's help. And so the people saved Jonathan from being put to death. Okay, so uh, we see this problem getting larger and larger. And then uh, I, I really wish we had time to talk about this. This is such a difficult uh, and challenging subject here with all the command for fighting and killing. It's a difficult verse. First Samuel 15, 3, where the command is given from Samuel to Saul, go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Don't leave a thing. Kill all the men, women, children, and babies, the cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. And I really was uh, tempted so many times that we're just going to talk about this subject today, but we talked about it a lot last year. And so I just would say if, if um, I think the subject is very important. I mean, it's uh, very difficult to wrap our minds around commands like this to wipe everyone out. But when we went over the Bible study on Joshua last year, we discussed this subject. So if some of you want to go back and at least hear what we said about it, not too many months ago, <clears throat> you can just find the book of Joshua and listen to it there. Again, I'm not sure I have all the answers for this, but at least some suggestions about why we have these commands. But anyway, that's what uh, Saul was told. Okay, but again, he didn't obey that command. Saul and his men spared Agag, Agag's life, the king of the Amalekites, and kept the best of the sheep and goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them, and they destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Okay. Now, uh, Samuel's looking for Saul, and Samuel heard that Saul had gone to the town of Carmel, where he had built a monument to himself. Is this, uh, was this God's... Uh, desire for the king to be building big statues in honor of himself. And we see this problem of uh, really a selfishness and pride, self-centeredness growing larger and larger. And we have this another encounter between Samuel and Saul. When Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully once again. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. Again, it just seems like he's really trying to, hopefully, if he puts a smiley face on it and comes out and shakes his hand, Samuel will um, you know, forget about it. It's, it reminds me of uh, Moses coming down from the mountain and running into Aaron. And it just, uh, just to remind you of this uh, encounter, it's very similar. Moses is angry, and Aaron answered, don't be angry with me. You know how determined these people are to do evil. They said to me, we don't know what has happened to this man Moses who brought us out of Egypt, so make us a god to lead us. Well, I asked them to bring me their gold ornaments and those who had any took them off and gave them to me and I threw the ornaments into the fire and out came this bull calf. Just threw it in there and out it came. It's a weird thing. You know, the, again, trying to cover this up as much as possible. Of course, Moses uh, wasn't buying that explanation. Okay, so coming back here to the encounter between Samuel and Saul, Samuel asked, well, if you really did the Lord's command, what is this sound of sheep in my ears and this sound of cows that I hear? And Saul answered, well, my men took them from the Amalekites. They kept the best sheep and cattle to offer as a sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we, and myself, we have destroyed completely. So again, kind of putting the blame there with his men. Why did you not obey him? Why did you rush to grab the loot and so do what displeases the Lord? 
Well, I did obey the Lord, Saul replied. I went out as he told me to, brought back King Agag and killed the Amalekites. But my men, again, those guys, they did not kill the best sheep and cattle that they captured. Instead, they brought them here to Gilgal to offer as a sacrifice to the Lord your God. And Samuel replied, well, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? And here we have a famous verse. Obedience is far better than sacrifice. Listening to him is much better than offering the fat of rams. And when we get to the Psalms, we'll have lots of illustrations of this. But Hebrew poetry is based not on rhyme, but on repetition. And so the, we often have two sentences and the second emphasizes and adds to the meaning of the first line. So obedience is far better than sacrifice. Listening to him is much better than offering the fat of rams. Obedience goes with listening and sacrifice goes with the offering the fat of rams. And you know, we kind of use these terms sometimes almost interchangeably, obedience and listening. You know, uh, again, picking on my son here, but when we were hiking somewhere around a cliff, you know, I told him don't go over uh, you know, very close. And he kept wandering over there. I kept saying, Caleb, listen. You know, really saying obey. So we have a lot of uh, overlap uh, between these two. And Samuel is telling Saul, you know what? You're really not willing to listen. And he's certainly not obedience. And it continues on. Rebellion against him is as bad as witchcraft. And arrogance is as sinful as idolatry. Because you have rejected the Lord's command, he has rejected you as king. Well, Samuel turned to leave, but Saul caught hold of his cloak and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel away from you today and given it to someone who is a better man than you. That must have been hard to hear. Well, finally, after all of this, uh, my men did it. I did what the Lord requested. Finally, Saul admitted it. And he said, I have sinned. But um, what he says next is uh, just rather uh, troubling to me. He said, but at least show me respect in front of the leaders of my people and all of Israel. Go back with me so that I can worship the Lord your God. So, you know, he said, yes, I've sinned, but stay with me. Let's, let's make a good show of it so that the people see that, you know, you at least appear like you're on my side. It doesn't seem like a genuine uh, repentance. Now, this is to remind me of a story. This is a Babinski sign here. <laughs> Um, and this was enough years ago that I think I can tell this story, but uh, there were a couple of interns who were interested in going into neurology. So what we noticed is that, um, you know, one of the interns, if you asked, uh, well, hey, did you check this on examination? Um, and this is a very good intern, but every once in a while I would say, oh, no, I didn't check that. I'm sorry, I'm going to go back and, and I'll check that. And, you know, very much uh, appreciated just the honesty, not trying to cover up or anything, was very open. Uh, no, I forgot that. I'm going to go back and check it, not trying to appear in a way that uh, was you know, deceptive at all. Um, the other intern always did everything. You know, well, did you check this? Uh, yes, it was normal. Um, and, and it just seemed a little bit unbelievable over a period of time that everything was always, uh, nothing was ever undone, everything had always been checked, and we just happened to have a a patient in the clinic that this intern saw that had a uh, fourth nerve palsy. And this is a very challenging um, condition to diagnose. It's just not that easy having the patient look up and down and you can say, yep, it's the fourth nerve that isn't working. And there's a, there's a complex uh, maneuver. It's called the Bilchowski maneuver, which none of you need to know about, but it's a six-step 
maneuver where you the patient tilt their head in different positions and cover the eye and do all kinds of things. Um, every time I need to do this, I need to look it up in a book because it's so complicated to remember all the different steps. But not really expecting an answer, I just I kind of said, well, did you do the Bilchowski maneuver? Almost as a joke. And uh, this intern said uh, yes, and it, it, uh, it confirmed uh, fourth nerve palsy. And so at that point, you know, you just are a little fed up with the whole situation. Well, tell me how you did the Bilchowski maneuver. And it was very obvious at that point that I had no idea what this was about. But again, kind of like, um, kind of like Saul a little bit, trying so much to put on a good appearance, never at fault. And that is, um, someone like that is really not teachable. You will be appreciated, actually, if you're just uh, open with things that uh, you didn't check. I mean, no one expects you to remember everything. So just humbly admit, yep, I didn't check that. Let's go back and, and check it. But Saul seems in that uh, kind of unteachable category. Well, what happened next, of course, is David to the rescue here with Goliath. We'll talk about this story next time. And then really the, the subject I want to spend the next uh, few minutes on, and that is the subject of envy or jealousy. I, I think... Saul's problem ultimately was selfishness, self-centeredness. He was the center of his universe rather than God, and that led to a whole bunch of problems. But envy for David is what really consumed Saul in the end. So these women are dancing after Goliath is killed. In their celebration, the women sang, Saul has killed thousands, but David tens of thousands. Saul did not like this, and he became very angry. He said, for David, they claim tens of thousands, but only thousands for me. They will be making him king next. And he was jealous and suspicious or envious in some versions of David from that day on. And uh, we'll just go over briefly what he did. Of course, he tried to get David in every way possible. The first was a very subtle trap. He tried to get David to uh, marry uh, his daughter. Okay, but it was a trick. Saul ordered them to tell David, all the king wants from you as payment for the bride or the, are the foreskins of a hundred dead Philistines as revenge on his enemy. This was a different time, wasn't it? And this was how Saul planned to have David killed by the Philistines. Now, David was delighted with the thought of becoming the king's son-in-law. And before the day set for the wedding, David and his men went and killed 200 Philistines. And he took their foreskins to the king and counted them all out. Can you imagine counting out foreskins? They're coming up with 200 of them. It's in the Bible. Okay, and so Saul then had to give his daughter to uh, David. Okay, so that didn't work. And as Saul more and more realized that God was with David and how, uh, how much his own daughter loved him, his fear of David increased and settled into hate. And Saul hated David. And envy, jealousy uh, always leads to hatred and to direct actions uh, against the person that you're envious of. And so, of course, uh, tried to kill him by throwing a spear at him. In 1 Samuel 19, Saul tried to pin David to the wall with his spear, but David dodged and the spear stuck in the wall David ran away and escaped. Next time we'll talk about David running around in caves, trying to hide from Saul. But on one of these occasions, the priest helped King David. Well, he wasn't the king yet, but he helped David. Okay, and the king found the priest, Ahimelech, and said, Ahimelech, you and all your relatives must die. And then he said to the guards standing near him, kill the Lord's priests. Here's the king. I mean, it was 85 people that were killed. Okay, but he went further. Saul also had all the other inhabitants of Nob, the city priests, put to death, men and women, children and babies, cattle, donkeys and sheep. They were all killed in a, in a jealous rage. 
Okay, so uh, let's spend a few minutes just talking about this. I think very important. You know, envy is one of the, what is it, seven deadly sins. That's not in the Bible, but some people have made that list. I think ultimately we can bring this back to selfishness, self-centeredness. Okay, but uh, in just one quote on that, which I like from Manuel Silva, the source of human unhappiness is an obsession with self. Behind it is the central message that the devil has placed inside our heads. And that central message is, look after number one, because you can't trust God to look after you. Take matters into your own hands. Pay yourself first. Every cent that you earn, make sure that you spend it on yourself before you give it to some church, charity, or individual in need. And even if you choose to give, make sure you do it to get some payoff, like honor or praise, or at least a tax tax-deductible receipt. Uh, the sin problem all comes down to one common denominator, me, myself, and I. Okay, and, and we see that in Saul. But now let's talk about the subject of, of envy, which uh, we tend to highlight certain sins and talk about them a lot. Well, this is one that's just so redundant in the Bible. In James 3, but if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, and those often go together, again, selfishness and jealousy, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. And we see that in Saul. For jealousy, jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. Okay, and Francis Bacon has just describes, this is one of the most self-destructive things, thought patterns that we can engage in. Envy is the worst of all passions and feedeth upon the spirits, and they again upon the body, and so much the more because it is perpetual, and as it is said, keepeth no holidays. It literally just consumes an individual. You can't get the thought out of your mind, and it gets worse and worse. Uh, just a couple of verses in Proverbs 27. Wrath is cruel, anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? And in chapter 14, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. And why was Jesus killed? Okay, two times in Matthew and in Mark, we're told that it was because of envy. For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. The priests were jealous. Okay, this uh, carpenter of Nazareth has this big following. People are amazed at his teachings. They were, they were jealous. Uh, further, they were envious. Okay, and killed him uh, in spite so there's a book here that really has some good things to say, The Psychology of Jealousy and Envy. And I think it's very biblical. But at the heart of envy is social comparison, a common and powerful influence on the self-concept. Much of our self-esteem comes from comparison with others. When one's abilities, achievements, or possessions compare poorly with those of another, there is potential for a decrease in one's self-esteem and public stature. And surely this is one route to envy. Social comparison can also stir up envy simply by heightening one's awareness of one's own deprivation. And so the problem, again, is if the focus of our reality is not God, his love for us, uh, but rather is ourself, and we're constantly then evaluating ourselves by those around us. Okay, we're uncomfortable then if, if people are, seem to be going a little higher than we are. It makes us envious. We want to push them down. We want to judge them, condemn them, do something to them put them down, and then we feel a little bit better about ourselves. Okay, and again, I've just, you see this in kids so often. I have two boys that are two years apart, and they both love Legos. So you get them something for Christmas, okay, and maybe after it's all put together, 
one of them decides, you know what, this one's a little bit bigger than mine. And, uh, you know, it just, it can become, but you just got this wonderful Lego set, isn't this great? You know, no, it's not as good as my brother's. And so there is this grading problem that develops. And I like this uh, definition of uh, envy by Thomas Aquinas, that it is sorrow at another's good. Something good happens to someone else, and uh, we're upset about that. We can't enjoy and appreciate good things that happen to other people because it, it should be happening to us. So Aristotle, and, and here is, I think, uh, something quite relevant for the whole great, great controversy theme. Aristotle points out that envy is felt chiefly toward those who are our peers. People do not necessarily envy the Rockefeller's wealth because the discrepancy does not reflect badly on them. It is only when the discrepancy between someone else's success and one's own failure serves to demonstrate or call attention to one's shortcomings that envy results. And we won't go into this, but um, Lucifer, I think when he became Satan, his, his um, anger, envy, really seemed to be directed to Jesus, the Son of God. I mean, what does Jesus do? He is an angel to angel, he's a man to, uh, to human beings. And so there seemed to be this uh, envy that developed, and we won't make a case for that now, but I think we're much more likely, it's true, to be envious of people that we see at about as the same level that we are. And I'll just give you some personal uh, examples here. I was a medical student uh, a number of years ago, and I had a group of people that I used to study with, and uh, one of them, well, you know, some people just do this. You ask, well, what did you put on number 11 on the test? And I was never good at remembering you know, the numbers of questions. But uh, anyway, he would often ask questions like that. And, uh, oh, it was congestive heart failure or something. And maybe I didn't get that one right. He always seemed to get a few points better than I did. And, oh, don't you remember we talked about that? And, you know, it's easy just to let something like that uh, be grading a little bit over time. Okay, so we tend to, again, with our peers, we're very sensitive to those kinds of issues. It never stops. Okay, you would think, well, once I attain a certain level, well, I'll never be tempted by those kinds of things. Well, um, you know, there are neurologists who know more about neurology than I do. And one of them is uh, Jeff Bounds, who works at the VA, whose, um, I mean, just uh, capacity and differential is, is amazing. And again, you can choose in, in, uh, to feel uh, not good about yourself based on maybe someone, there's always gonna be someone who is better than you in certain areas. Or can you appreciate and admire uh, someone who is, um, you know, uh, has such a, a knowledge and capacity? I worked in private practice for a number of years. And, um, you know, one of the common things we see in neurology is carpal tunnel syndrome. And uh, we had this one particular patient. It was a very challenging diagnosis. Usually carpal tunnel is easy. This one is difficult. Consultation, EMG, lots and lots of time. And finally figured out it really was carpal tunnel syndrome. And so I talked with the hand surgeon later. And um, he said, yeah, that's so easy to fix. It takes about four minutes to fix a carpal tunnel. It's outpatient procedure, just the easiest thing in the world to do. And later I was on a committee that had to do with finances and found out how much a hand surgeon gets paid for doing a carpal tunnel release compared to a neurology consultation and an EMG. Okay, and again, we, we can be very tempted. Oh, that's not right. I, I spent... Uh, two and a half hours with that patient, trying to make the diagnosis. And you did a little four minute thing that was just very, very easy. Okay, we can become consumed our entire life by looking at others, comparing ourselves with others. Uh, and life is not fair. There are lots of injustices, but um, the, the road of envy is to become self-consumed with these things. 
Self is the opposite of envy. It really is love. 1 Corinthians 13. Notice the difference. Love cares more for others than self. Okay, Jesus is love personified. We certainly see that in his life. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Okay, isn't that what envy is? Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head. It isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Isn't that what envy does? It doesn't revel when others grovel. Okay, envy is pleased when our neighbor, uh, our classmate uh, does poorly. I'm not accusing you of that, but that's, that would be suggesting some envy. Now, who I really find remarkable in this story, though, is Jonathan. Because Jonathan was the heir to be king. You would think if someone was going to be jealous of David, it would be Jonathan. Okay, but he was pleased with David's success. Jonathan became David's closest friend. He loved David as much as he loved himself. It's a definition of love. Jonathan made a pledge of mutual loyalty with David because he loved him as much as he loved himself. Okay, that's uh, really to be uh, admired. Uh, David had done all these things, getting all this praise, and Jonathan doesn't seem like it uh, didn't rub him the wrong way. He just admired David. He appreciated God's choice in choosing David to be king. Okay, so uh, in just uh, another concluding verse in Galatians 6, there's so much on this topic. Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you've been given, and then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. And here, don't compare yourself with others. Uh, don't do that. It's, uh, it's very, very destructive. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. And we just have a tendency in our thought life, to, you know, trying to do things to boost our self-esteem. Think about certain things that make us feel better about ourselves. And that could be a number of things, including judging and condemning others. We feel a little bit better sometimes when we do that. Okay, and it all, I think, boils down to having a center that is really self rather than a center that is God-focused. If I could just read this uh, list here of things that I've kind of concluded on the subject. Envy manifests itself in the resentment of others' prosperity rather than being pleased with others' prosperity. Envy manifests as judgment, condemnation, and hatred of others. Envy is fueled by the expectation of deserving success and recognition over another person. Envy, therefore, is closely linked to pride, selfishness, and greed. Envy is the opposite of love. Love rejoices over the good of another. And envy seeks the destruction of another for the benefit of one's own gain. So maybe if we can make an illustration here from our solar system here. Uh, it, it's, we are all wired this way, it seems like, that we are the center. Everything revolves around us. Okay? And if, if that is the mindset, then we are, uh, I think, continually just thirsting after the affirmation, the praise of others. If we get that, we're feeling good. It's a good day. Okay? If something happens, we're put down a little bit, it's a terrible day because our self is deflated. Okay? I think the ideal <clears throat> is really to place... God at the center. And ultimately, what does that mean? Um, I think uh, uh, the love that God has for us, I mean, we see that most clearly on the cross. It's not a dimmer switch like our friends and those around us. Sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down a little bit. It's, it's on all the way with God all the time. If that becomes the center, it's a, a wonderful burden that is released. Okay, you're not dependent on getting things from other people, getting praise from other people. You don't spend your life searching after getting some affirmation from those around you, from achievements. 
Okay, that all of uh, self-esteem and self-worth, that you get that entirely from God. And when, when we switch over and begin to think of things in that way, I think we live our lives in an entirely different way. Okay, so next time we're going to talk about David and we're going to contrast David with Saul and try to answer the question, why was David a man after God's own heart? Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> well, I just pray for each one here that uh, we would begin to think in new patterns of thought, that we would be ultimately centered on you, who you are, and the great love that uh, you have for us. May we get our life from that. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>